From Nine News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join Nine Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. He's accidentally shot my wife. A young mother dead. Knowing everything you know, we have no proof of anything. that we know right. now. An investigation over before it began. That child was innocent. I feel like I failed him too. Got feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time there ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. Oh, I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? Kevin, are you mic'd? Am I on? The day comes that I've been waiting for. The day that producer Anna Houston and executive producer Nicole Vapp and I have talked about over and over again. We haven't debriefed. We haven't texted. What happened? Did you not read it? No. Have you never your email? No. No, I have not. I have been driving. The day when we hear from that little boy blamed for his mother's death. Oh God, is this from him? Mm-hmm. Cowboy Bob's Ranch. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, the football. As Nicole reads Tanner's letter, we want you to hear it too. It's being read by one of our nine news photographers, Mike Grady. Kevin, my name is Tanner Wells, the son of Jill Adair Wells and Michael Dean Wells. When I was six, I lost my mother. At 14, I lost my father. I loved both very deeply. I have read your letter and all the documentation that was sent to me from Lynn and am interested in seeing everything else you may have. Negligence comes to mind when I think back to that day. Now, I don't blame my parents for not watching my every move. I don't sit here and wonder what would life be like if they did. I remember the moment for what it was. The past is the past, and you can't change that. You can't rewrite history as you sit at your desk currently trying to do. Now I don't try to tell many this story as you can imagine. I find it hard to put trust in people. Maybe that's due to what happened during my childhood and the shortfalls of trying to depend on a father whose problems aren't just financial but rooted in addiction. The fact is that three days before my birthday on March 28, 2001, I was target practicing with my parents at what we called Cowboy Bob's Ranch. I remember my mother laying down and me getting up. I grabbed my father's lever action, which for me at the time was hard to cock. At this point in my life, I had shot plenty of times. Maybe my parents felt comfortable with me handling firearms by myself. Negligence is a harsh word, but it's the truth. I shouldn't have had my hands on a gun I wasn't very familiar with without someone helping me through every step. In that traumatic moment, things can get blurry. Some details you may not remember, but the truth is, I do. Now, I can't tell you the weather on that day or what the sheriff looked like, but I can tell you what I do remember. For so many years, I've tried to move on, but those memories come up almost every day. I remember nights running to my dad's arms and bawling my eyes out and seeing him do the same. Most people don't ever see their fathers cry. I remember feeling the tears of my father flood my shoulder as we cried together, trying to put a smile on my face when I was broken inside so I wouldn't show the outside world a damaged kid. Growing up, I remember the times where people would talk behind my back about my past. 
In sixth grade, I pushed a kid at recess playing football, maybe a little too hard, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He yelled, why don't you go kill your dad like you did your mom? Again, I had to cry with my dad, and again, I have to remember it. When my father died, I had to start over here in Missouri. And it may have been a blessing not to have to walk around with everyone knowing what happened and who was responsible. When people find out about it, I tell people that I don't remember, so I don't have to relive that event in my head when they ask what happened. And maybe that is why Julie came to you. I can understand her not asking me because I would probably tell her the same thing I tell everyone. But the truth is that in that moment, my gun fired in my hands. The picture of my mother with her head down as my father grabbed me and ran inside and put me next to my brother and I asked why he did that. I remember talking to many people, telling them what happened to my mom, and I told them that she hit her head on a rock. But she didn't hit her head on a rock because I killed her. Yet again, I have to remember. This comes from my heart when I tell you that you can search for anything you want and you may find traces of past deceit and lies. You may uncover things no one wants to believe or hear, like I have my father's unfaithfulness. You can chase after any story you want to write, anything you want to show the world so you can shine a spotlight on yourself. I'm not going to disagree with what you presented. There are a lot of things that you showed that are fact and I'm not going to debate them. But I'm going to tell you the main truth, not the story that you're trying to find under stacks of documents from the past 20 or so years. But you go ahead with your story. I'm sure you're not a bad guy, but you are digging into people's lives and conforming your own beliefs to present a false account of what has happened. As I stated before, I'd like to see what else you have. And I know my father had his troubles with addiction. I know he struggled financially, though he never showed it to me or my brother. He could have sought help for his issues, and who knows, maybe he wasn't the greatest dad when you put those facts out there. But he was the only one holding on to me when we cried together because of the grief we felt. That day, we lost one of the brightest shining spirits to walk on this earth, and my mother. But it was me, not him holding the gun. So I sit here, and I remember just like I have for the last 17 years, and just like I'll have to for the rest of my life. Tanner Wells, son of Michael Dean Wells and Jill Adair Wells. Well, what do you think? The email with that attached to it came very late last night and I didn't actually see it until uh, after midnight when I looked at my phone. It's extremely thoughtful, first of all. It sort of reinforced my impression of Tanner just based on the way people mm -hmm. have described him. Yep. That he's a very thoughtful and uh, serious young man. You know, I feel like I never really slept last night. I know I did sleep, but I feel like even while I was asleep, I was thinking about it. Well, obviously, w none of us knows what truly happened that day. And I think we've talked amongst ourselves many times about how bad the original investigation was in terms of being able to have confidence that the that what was reported and what the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department concluded in 2001 is actually what happened. It's interesting to hear that Tanner believes and remembers that it happened the way it was reported to have happened. Oh, I have a million follow-up questions. I, I want to try to reconcile that with, with the statements that he apparently made to other kids while he was growing up that he didn't think that he fired that shot, that he felt something whiz by his ear, and of course all of that, we don't know the truthfulness of any of that either. That's one of the many things that's wrapped around this entire story is there are so many different reports about, about what happened. He obviously read everything I sent him before he wrote that, mm -hmm. which is interesting. I sent him a lot of stuff yesterday. Cool. I sent him like, like 15 PDFs, all multi-page documents, some of them, you know, really detailed. 
you know, the truth is we've worked really hard to be extremely sensitive to what was best for him. He doesn't know that. Right? He doesn't know that. And, and obviously if I were sitting down with him face to face, we could talk through all that. And I'm hoping that's going to happen soon. What I notice just reading it once with an audience, so that makes it harder, but he doesn't mention the exhumation. He doesn't mention the life insurance. And he has not resolved. He says he remembers the shot but he thought for years that it was a rock. So I, I don't know that a six, almost seven-year-old boy can piece that together in his head that I did it, you know, because it took him years to find out that she had been shot, right? Isn't that kind of what you're get gleaning from this letter? I guess I'm completely confused about the whole sequence of events because right. we've heard different things at different times about when he knew stuff or was told stuff or said stuff to people. And obviously a lot of that can be clarified by having a conversation with him. I thought it was interesting that he brought up financial problems, unfaithfulness, and addiction. But he does not mention the life insurance. I'm going to send him much more internal life insurance stuff today. I think that would be another thing. I think he would also need to know what an average amount of life insurance for somebody yeah. like this. I, I, I don't think at 22 you have an idea of, you, you have a concept of how much normal people or, you know, an average. I mean, it sounds cold and calculating, but they put a value on your life. If you were buying life insurance, they would say, basically, how much more money are you expected to earn in your career? And if something happened to you today, how much of a financial loss would your family suffer? And then they just put a number on it and they basically say, this is what we would insure you for. But the other thing that struck me, I was thinking about this, of course, I can't stop thinking about this, but if you just think about the people who had suspicions, the EMTs that responded had suspicions. One of his dad's best friends who went out there that day and drove them home developed suspicions fairly quickly. Another of his friends that he hunted with a lot, a division wildlife officer, developed suspicions. Jill's friends that she worked with had suspicions immediately to the point of like, literally as soon as they heard that she had died, they had suspicions. Jill's sisters had suspicions. I mean, everybody that knew this family in any way, whether they were friends of Jill's or even in some cases friends of Mike's or even people who didn't know him at all that just answered a 911 call, they all had those suspicions. And then you multiply that going forward to the people that reopened this case in 2008. The investigator in Lincoln County, Albert Leach, and the sheriff and the undersheriff, Dr. Mike Doberson, who did the autopsy in 2008. It's like everybody has doubts about Mike Wells' version of events, questions, and in some cases, maybe outrage is too strong a word, but just they're just perplexed by how little was done originally by the authorities, by the coroner and the sheriff. We deal with a lot of people that suspect something's going wrong someplace, right. right? People call us every day, call our tip line every day and say corruption is happening or this crime is happening or whatever. Often in those cases, we're dealing with one person that's seen something and we have to evaluate, is this one person's suspicion founded? In this case, just almost everybody is suspicious. But we finally heard from him. Yeah. I feel like this is like groundbreaking. This is like... Yeah. There's been concern by the people who are close to him and who love him about what the best way was to tell him about our investigation. And it's clear to me in this letter that he has a much better and deeper understanding of his dad than maybe even they realized. Kids don't miss much. I got an impression when he said negligence. 
that he doesn't hold all the blame to himself. Yeah. He's like, right. hey, maybe my parents should have been a little, like, more. So that also tells me that he's thought about who's to blame in this no. situation and that he's gone to places that the ants didn't think that he had gone before. I also, like, walking away from this letter, think he's saying he's clinging to that core story. Oh. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff here, but uh, this is the story. This right. is it. I'm, I'm clinging to that branch yeah. and until there's more. And I think that's where the Doberson, that's where the experts coming in and talking about it, not just suspicions. I think that's, he's known that there are suspicions for a long time, but right? He's never seen anything to back it up. Right. When you're shooting in a fixed position like this at a target, you know, there's certain things that knowledgeable and safety conscious outdoors people do. And just the fact of letting a child shoot a gun that's too big for them. I mean, I did that when I was a kid. Both of my grandfathers were hunters and had guns. My dad was a sports shooter. He wasn't really a hunter, but I grew up around guns. And I have memories of being really little and my dad holding the gun and me putting my finger on the trigger and pulling the trigger, you know. But just from a range safety standpoint, if you're going to hand a child a gun that they haven't handled before, a gun that's oversized, and let them shoot it, that's not uncommon or improper but the next step after he's fired the gun is to take the gun out of his hand and walk away with it to go back and get the other gun not to walk back and get the other gun and leave him standing there holding this gun that's much bigger than the gun that that he was shooting and much bigger than a gun for someone his size can safely shoot negligence yeah, exactly, exactly. The other thing he brings up a lot is the crying. It doesn't surprise me at all that this has been an emotionally difficult thing for him over a long period of time. The other thing I thought of, I've thought of a lot about, because it's, it's sort of an enduring part of journalism for me, is about human observation and memory. When I think about what Tanner remembers from this traumatic episode that happened when he was not quite seven years old and how be just bewildering, I mean, that's the word that keeps coming to mind. Like your world is just upside down. Your mom is gone. All these people are coming into town. There's a funeral. Right. Like, uh, well, you form memories sometimes from what other people tell you, right or wrong, especially at that age. Are you ever fully capable of a non-biased memory? And in my case, for me, it's like I have these vivid memories of certain things. There are also things that we have photos of in our photo album. So it's like, am I remembering it independently or am I remembering it because every 12 or 18 months over my whole life, and I've cracked open a photo album and go, oh yeah, I remember that, you know. Right. So which is it? I, I mean, I think, you know, they always say in like crime, you know, that the eyewitness is the wor in some cases the worst evidence. To get a better idea of the realities of human memories, Nicole, Anna, and I sat down with Dr. Max Wachtel. He's a forensic psychologist. We talked to him on an earlier episode about the things we ought to be thinking about as we pursued this story. The things that might be difficult for Tanner that we should be mindful of. What do we know about how they're formed, how accurate they are, how they're manipulated if they are. The thing that we know very strongly about childhood memories as adults is that they are all wrong. It's, it's called episodic memory. Our brains are really bad at it. And what we think happened is almost never what happened. You know, it's always based in, in some sort of truth, uh, but we get a lot of the details wrong. 
personal example I have is from um, when I was four, I have this very, very vivid memory of um, going to a mall with my mom in Michigan. And, and we moved from Michigan um, shortly after that. Um, and I, you know, and I didn't go back and ever visit this mall. And I, but I had this vivid memory of going and looking at a huge fish tank, kind of in the middle of the mall. It was, you know, just a big weird fish tank, and uh, and, and I loved it. So, um, so I was like standing there watching the fish swim, and it was really cool. And I was excited, and I was talking to my mom about the fish. I mean, this, I mean, this is a, a very strong early memory for me. And it turns out that it uh, was a bird cage. Um, really? And there were a bunch of birds in there. And uh, how do you know this? Uh, my mom told me later. She was like, no, that was a bird cage. How do you know your mom's memory is accurate? I, I don't know. I, it may, maybe it was a fish. I, I tend to trust my mom's memory as, you know, the, how old was she then? You know, she was in her 30s then as compared to mine at age four. Um, I'm just trusting that she's telling the truth, or that, she, or that she's remembering at least that major detail correctly. What age do kids start having memories that are more trustworthy? Is there an age? Is it a teenage thing? Is it adult? We start to get kind of snapshots of memories, um, you know, like around three or four. Or so, especially you know, big things, some something that's that's really out of the ordinary, uh, or maybe like a snapshot of. Our room at our in our house or something like that. They start to get more reliable, um, like around second, third grade, honestly. So, um, so that age is what, like eight or nine or so. Um, it, it's it's older than you think. That doesn't mean the kids don't have memories from before that, but um, but they tend to be pretty unreliable. And even after that, they tend to be pretty unreliable. And and, and to be honest with you, even episodic memory, those you know, memories for episodes that occur in our lives. Uh, even as adults, uh, we aren't all that great at it, uh, at forming those new memories and keeping them intact. There's a lot of really interesting research that looks at, you know, like, like the, more, the more that we uh, access one of those memories, like, a, um, you know, like thinking about an eyewitness account, somebody witnesses a bank robbery and they see the the robber come out wearing a, a blue shirt. The more times that person accesses that memory, the more unreliable it gets. It doesn't, it doesn't help kind of lock it in place, lock the reality in place. It, it actually gets more unreal the more times that person thinks about it. And then eventually, you know, the shirt turns into a green shirt instead of a blue shirt. And it's two robbers instead of one. And they're both holding guns instead of knives. And they, you know, they, they aren't wearing masks when they really were. You know, the, the major changes happen, even to adults. It's kind of amazing that, that we have great memories, uh, great ability to remember things. But episodic memory is really, uh, we, we aren't good at it. Trauma play into that? Is it more accurate or less accurate? Traumatic memories tend to be more vivid because they are so shocking and so out of place. It's just kind of natural for our brains to latch on to them. Um, so we tend to remember a lot about traumatic events until you get to a certain point where maybe um, you completely, like if, it, if it's horribly traumatic, like a sexual assault or something like that, you know, the, you, you can actually dissociate and your mind goes somewhere else and you, you don't remember anything about it. But, but typically with traumatic events, you, you, uh, your memory is much more vivid, but it's not necessarily any more accurate.
Younger kids are also more susceptible to outside influences. It's extremely easy with kids to um, implant false memories. In fact, one of the uh, one of the interesting kind of techniques that um, uh, that police interviewers who are trained to interview children, especially young children, about um, like a sex assault or the, you know a murder that they've witnessed or whatever, uh, in order to not kind of cue them and, and, and implant a false memory is that uh, they will figure out how suggestible the kid is by asking a question like, do you see that bird up there in the corner? Uh, and they'll, they'll ask it a couple of times. Uh, there's, there's obviously no bird flying around in the corner of the room. Um, and some kids will be like, you know, no, there's not a bird up there. But, but a lot of them will, will say, yes, I see the bird. Uh, and, and then 20 minutes later, yeah, I remember when that bird was flying around the room. Um, so it, that's a, it's just a, a signal of you know, how easy it is to either on purpose or accidentally implant a false memory into a kid's head. There could be an innocent implanting of a memory. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think you know, we probably do that all of the time with, you know, without really meaning to, you know, the, but just by asking a leading question or you know, we think something is right, so we tell somebody this is how it happened and then they really believe it yet, yeah, so that we can ab absolutely do that by accident. I would guess that kids are susceptible to manipulation by an adult. Yes, absolutely. And, and it doesn't matter um, if the adult is a you know a person in a position of trust, or if they are a complete stranger, that you know the kids kind of tend to believe what adults tell them. I'd like to talk about this letter that Tanner wrote to me after being told about the investigation we were working on. My first thought is that uh, I'm impressed with Tanner. Uh, that, you know, he seems like a, um, a smart thoughtful uh, person, uh, you know, I want to say kid, he's not a kid anymore. He seems like a smart, thoughtful person um, who is open to thinking that, you know, things may not have been ideal. The letter is interesting because it's, he's not defensive, uh, but he's also pretty clear that, uh, you know, that his version of events is going to remain his version of events, uh, you know, regardless of, um, whatever anybody might tell him. He has a pretty realistic view of his dad. You know, it sounds like he loved his dad, but knew that he was a flawed individual. He seems like he's an in, in an interesting place because uh, for somebody who seems like he's gonna really stick to that story as strongly as he wants to, uh, I would expect more anger and defensiveness. And it, it didn't seem like that was there from the letter. Thoughtful was the word that came to mind the after the first time I read it was like, that's a really thoughtful letter that he wrote in a fairly short amount of time, like in a matter of hours from first hearing from me. Yeah, see, that's impressive because I didn't realize that it just took a couple hours. That seems like something that it would take, you know, like weeks or months to get to. It made me think that some of these thoughts had been in his brain before. Like he has thought about this ahead of time. So putting together a reaction almost was something he was expecting to have to do at some point. And, and that would make a lot of sense, honestly. So, you know, the, this may have been a letter that he had been working on in his mind for years. And, and I don't know if that's because somebody else had brought up the idea, like, you know, dude, maybe you didn't kill your mom. Or, or maybe he just has had those thoughts and wondered. Uh, but you're right, that he could have been thinking about this for a long time. I find the opening and closing lines very interesting because he seems to be wanting to tell us who he is. He says, my name is Tanner Wells, the son of Jill Adair Wells and Michael Dean Wells. When I was six, I lost my mother. At 14, I lost my father. I loved both very deeply. 
Then he goes on to talk about the letter. And his last sentence is, or not really sentence, but he signs off Tanner Wells, son of Michael Dean Wells and Jill Adair Wells. I just find it really very, I mean, he, he was very specific to say who he is both at the beginning and at the end. And I don't know if there's any meaning we can take from that, but it was very uh, deliberate. That did strike me as odd too when I when I first read it, especially given the context that you know that this wasn't a letter that, that you got Kevin just out of the blue. This was no. this was a response to something that you had already sent to him. So that so you already you know who he is. He didn't need to inter introduce himself, but he did. It almost gives it like a manifesto kind of feel, like the you know, like this is my story, the you know intangible form. Now, I was struck by the fact that the first time he lists his mom's name first and his dad's name second, and the second time it's the other way around. And it's just struck me, it's like he's trying to be equally respectful to both of his parents. He defines himself at the beginning and the end as the son of these two people, which um, you, know, you can we can all define ourselves in, in lots of different ways. But if I'm writing a letter, I wouldn't necessarily think to define myself as the son of my parents. But I probably would have when I was a kid. Um, and it, so it, it, it makes me wonder if there's there's part of him that just kind of feels stuck as a kid with, with two pretty traumatic things that happened. You know, he lost his mom and his dad both when he was pretty young. He says in here, he told me that my mom had hit her head on a rock, but the last thing he writes before he signs off is, but it was me, not him, holding the gun. As if that's something that he's remembering. Can both be true? Could you remember both things? I mean, if you remember holding the gun, would you have ever believed that his mom hit her head on a rock? What you do have in there is you do have Mike Wells saying, I told him she bumped her head. And I told you she, she just bumped her head. And then you have the officer using that in a question. Hey, why I'm down here today? Okay, why? Because my mom. And what were you guys doing when your mom bumped her head? Would that have the potential to set that into his memory? That would certainly have the potential to set that into his memory as a false memory. It, it sounds like it, that didn't happen. From his letter, Tanner writes, I remember talking to many people, telling them what happened to my mom, and I told them that she hit her head on the rock, but she didn't hit her head on a rock because I had killed her. Yet again, I have to remember. It would have had the potential to, you know, to be confusing, but it sounds like he really believes that that is not true. You know, he gives the one example. Uh, in the sixth grade, I pushed a kid at recess playing football, maybe a little too hard, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He yelled, why don't you go kill your dad like you did your mom? So this was something that, that lots of people knew about, not just Tanner and his family. And uh, my guess is that he was getting messages like that a lot throughout his childhood. Nearly a year ago, I set out on this journey with Nicole and Anna, hoping we'd find that one piece of compelling evidence, that one answer, that one detail that would tell us exactly what happened the day Jill Wells died. We uncovered a lot about the problems in the original investigation, and we've learned a lot more than was ever known about Mike Wells and his troubles. We've talked to people who've never spoken before to anyone about this case. And we're still looking for answers, a journey that's going to continue. There are people we haven't been able to find and people we found who didn't want to talk to us. We're circling back. 
There are records we've been trying to unearth. We're pushing harder for those. There's been some discussion of a new official investigation, and we're monitoring that. And we'll be back when we have new developments and new information. In the meantime, you can make sure you don't miss a thing. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to the Blame podcast, and you'll get an alert when we release the next installment. And you can go to the Blame page on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and search Blame and you'll find it. Or you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Blame podcast. You can join the group and join the discussion. Ask us questions. Share your thoughts. As we continue to ask, was that six-year-old boy really to blame? Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is the producer and editor. And I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on ninenews.com slash blame.